everybody. Hey, I bet you're busy, so I'm going to make this quick. My name is Jesse. I'm an elementary art teacher, so usually what that means is that I push my classroom from room to room on an art cart. So yeah, I'm literally turning cartwheels. I'm also a martial arts instructor, so I'm also doing cartwheels in the dojo. I'm a Comic-Con vendor, a husband, a pet owner, an illustrator, a college night class instructor, a brother, a puppet enthusiast, an uncle, a YouTuber, I guess, uh, a son, and a podcaster, just to name a few. For me, the wheels are always turning. And in a world where more and more is being asked of us, it's enough to make your head spin. If you've felt overwhelmed and lost, well, so have I. And I don't claim to know the answers, but I'm happy to look things up. So join me at cartwheelspodcast.com for the latest episodes of the Turning Cartwheels Podcast. I'd really appreciate it. Welcome to another all-new episode of Moose's Monster Mash, the show that knows you never go into the dark room or the haunted woods by yourself. I'm your host, Moose the Monster Masher, and with me, I have an exciting new guest. He's been a predator. He's been a member of Starfleet. He's also been the Dark Knight. He's an actor, a writer, editor. He does special effects and a producer. Please welcome my good friend, Mr. Wyatt Weed. Hey, how's it going? It's going, it's going, and I, I guess I should clear up that when I say you've been a predator, I, I, I don't mean the one that gets called into the kitchen and <laughs> get, it gets caught on camera. I mean, the more the one that goes up against, like, Danny Glover and Jake Busey, I mean, not Jake Busey, Gary Busey, I'm sorry. Yes. Um, no, and thank you for that clarification. I don't want the I don't want the, <laughs> don't want the police kicking down my door this afternoon while we're doing this. Um, yeah, one of those twentieth century fox predators, one of those alien versus predator predators, one of the, one of those guys, the good kind of predators. Yes, the the scary kind of predator, the scary in a good movie way, not in a uh, hide your daughter's way. So yeah, so but yeah, I mean, so yeah, you worked on Predator Two. Yes. Uh, you were a boar predator. Yes. Which is more or less, you, you were infantry, if I'm, if you had to rank. Uh, yeah, well, they call them, they've referred to them since then as the Lost Tribe. Um, but what's interesting about all of that is that, uh, you know, back when we shot that film, we, sh- we shot it, I think, in early 1990, shot that scene anyway, and... We were just predators. I mean, we, we didn't have names. They weren't called the Lost Tribe. And that's all stuff that came about in the years afterwards. There was like so much. Uh, the fans just created so much backstory. And the fans are the ones who assigned all those characters names. And then I think it was NECA, the toy company, that sort of went into the fan archives and said, well, what are the fans calling these guys? So NECA toys sort of followed what the fans were doing and what was all over like the predator wiki pages and stuff like that. So, um, 
it was interesting that that thing all took on a life and and did it, all these things happened with the Predator franchise, but almost completely driven by the fans. So by the time I started going to conventions as a Predator and signing autographs and appearing for that, um, there were people who knew more about what was going on with the franchise and all this backstory than we ever knew working on the film. That's <laughs> I mean, we it was just hey you come stand here. I wasn't the boar Predator and. So and so wasn't, you know, the, we we didn't have the names. It was just, yeah, you tall guy, come over here, stand here. So, yeah, nice. What was it like working on uh, Predator Two? I mean, that, that that's a pretty iconic. Uh... Yeah, it. There were two things really in Hollywood, um, Star Trek and Predator Two, that were sort of the the pinnacle. Like, I had I had some success in Hollywood. I never broke through and became the household name. But the, there were two times in my life where I just, I knew I was standing in the shadow of something really, really cool, and I was very aware of it. And it was Star Trek and Predator 2. And those things happened. I think Star Trek 2 happened, like, fall of 89, and then Predator happened, like, spring of 90 so these things were right on top of each other they happened very quickly and with predator 2 it was such a cool experience because i had i had I'd fallen in with a crew of people it was like steve wang eddie yang screaming mad george uh this stuntman named brian simpson um, and these were all guys, probably not Screaming Mad George, but these were all guys who'd worked on a lot of big films in Hollywood. And in particular, they'd worked on the first Predator film. Now, everybody knows the story about how they started shooting Predator, the first version, and they had a different design for the alien. And that design, that suit was being played by uh, Jean-Claude Jean Van Damme. And that version didn't work. The suit didn't look good. Van Damme was a pain in the butt, and they basically stopped shooting that version, and they went back to the United States for a couple of months, and that's when they redesigned and rebuilt the Predator, and that's when Steve Wang and Eddie Yang and Stan Winston's crew got involved and started creating the new version of the Predator, the Predator we know. And so I knew who Steve was, and I knew who all these guys were, because I was still living in the St. Louis area, and I was reading, you know, I'm reading... Fangoria and I'm reading Starlog and I'm reading all these magazines. So I know who these guys are. So when I get to LA, I fall in with these guys and Steve Wang is working on a low budget film of his own called Kung Fu Rascals. And he's telling us all these stories, all this behind the scenes stuff. He's telling us about the director. He's telling us about Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's telling us about what happened with Jean-Claude Van Damme and I'm just soaking it up and I'm learning all this stuff and I'm taking in as much as I can. Well, then they start working on predator two and Steve does not work on predator two, but Brian Simpson does. And Brian Simpson, I know I'm giving you a lot of detail here, but um, Brian Simpson was the stunt man on the first film. And something a lot of people don't know is that if a predator is on camera by himself, he doesn't have to be like a seven and a half foot tall guy. So finding a big guy like Kevin Peter Hall to act on camera as the predator against Arnold in a scene, that's one thing. Getting a predator to like fall off of a roof or run through fire or jump through treetops, you need like a really good stuntman to do that. And finding seven foot two tall stuntman is kind of tough. So Brian Simpson ended up being the primary predator stunt guy. 
And he and I are about the same size. We're about six foot one. But when we're not on screen with somebody like Arnold, you don't know that. So going into Predator 2, they were reworking Brian Simpson's old Predator suit to be one of the background Predators. And Brian was going to be in that end scene. And I think he was in that suit for the infamous Predator dance video that's been going around on the internet. (laughs) But then... They had to take him and they had to go do some second unit stuff with a whole other thing where the Predator is sliding down the side of the building. And they said, hey, what can we do? Do you know anybody who could fill your suit? And Brian and I had worked together on Kung Fu Rascals. I'd done Creature Suit before. He'd seen me do stuff. He knew I could do it. So basically, like, Monday night I get a call. Hey, man, you want to be a Predator? And by like Tuesday morning, I'm in the Predator suit and I'm on set at 20th Century Fox. And you asked what that was like. Well, it's one of those times in your life where you know you really need to just focus and concentrate and be a real professional and like stop screwing around and show them what you've got. And I just I was on it. I was concentrated. I was focused. I was doing my best to be a Predator and be alert and be awake and do what they said. And we shot fast. It was hot. It was uncomfortable, but it was, my head was spinning. Cause I was like, you know, I walk in, I get slammed in a predator suit and then I get walked on set and I'm seeing the set for the first time. And there's the trophy case with the door up and you can see the alien head is in there. And I'm just going, Oh my God, the alien and the predator universes are, are together. And now they're acknowledging it. And Oh, there's Danny Glover. That's so cool. And, Stephen Hopkins was the director and Stephen Hopkins had done like a Nightmare on Elm Street film. So I knew who he was and just it was a lot to take in very, very quickly. And I just stayed focused and stayed concentrated. And and I had a great day. It was an awesome experience. Um, I'm one of the few guys who has photos of himself as the predator because you're not supposed to shoot photos of that stuff. Well, I took my camera anyway, you know, the old 35 millimeter film camera. (laughs) And I had it like stuck in a backpack. And at one point when things were slow, I don't remember the name of my handler because every one of us had a handler. And that was a guy who helped us get in our suits and then helped us maintain our suits while we were on camera. So if there were 10 predators, there were 10 handlers. And my handler, I turned to him at some point and I said, hey, you think we can get some shots of this? And he kind of looked around to see if anybody was looking, and he quietly said, yeah, let's go for it. So we got some shots of me in the suit on the soundstage, and then we went outside in the daylight and shot a shot of me in the full suit. And then, But the cool thing about that was this was, you know, this was pre-internet. This was pre-digital. So this was 35-millimeter film negative. And I mean, many years went by before I was able to take those negatives and go get them digitally scanned and do anything with them. So back then, it still was relatively hard to spoil things. I mean, nowadays, you can be working on a film and somebody walking down the street can pull out a cell phone, chick snap a picture, and it's on the internet within seconds. Back then, there's no, who could I have given it to? I couldn't have you know, I couldn't have sent it to Fangoria or even if I'd sent it to Fangoria, it would have taken them several months to publish a new actual paper issue of the magazine. So, you know, it was a very different time then. And even though we weren't supposed to take photos, I don't think anybody cared that much. So, but I got to meet Stan Winston. I got to hang out with uh, Kevin Peter Hall, who was just an awesome guy, 
very friendly, very funny. And I didn't really get to hang much with the actors. Danny Glover, I mean, he was very professional and he was friendly. He just, they were rehearsing a lot. They were lighting a lot. They'd bring him in. They'd shoot, 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 shoot. And then they'd whisk him off to his trailer. So we didn't get to do much with him. But the experience was just, it was fantastic. And, you know, we thought, oh, this is going to do so much for our careers. And when Predator 2 opens, it's going to be huge and we're all going to work. And Predator 2 kind of came and went. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the first film. The first film was just such a phenomenon. And Predator 2, it was successful, but it wasn't like that first film. So the film kind of came and went, and we didn't really get any work out of it, and nobody really cared, and we just shrugged and went on with our lives. And years and years later, with the resurgence of the Predator versus Alien films and the internet and all the fans, you know, I've had more people come up to me in the last five years and say, oh my god, Predator 2 was my favorite film of the series. But, you know, back in 1990, there was like no network for that. There was no, there was no way for fans to talk to each other and communicate. And now you've got predator costuming sites and groups. You've got, you know, the, the predator wiki and you've got the NECA toys. And it's just the internet, you know, the internet is bad for some things, but the internet has been really great for these fan communities to be able to find each other. So I've, I've had a whole second life with predator you know, 15 years after the film was made. It's been crazy. 15, well, 20, 25 years after the film was made. So that, that picture you took, is that the one you have on your uh, board that you take to conventions with you? Yes, yes. And a cool thing is that um, I, I forgot it happened. I, <coughs> I was at a convention a few years back. And I've had people do this to me all the time. People will run up to me and go, oh, my God, dude, the guy's got a model of your Predator over there. Or guy's got an action figure of your Predator. And it was never my Predator. It was always the city hunter. It was always a different Predator, the elder Predator. It was it was something else. And I, and I, I would just be polite and go, yeah, 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 whatever. It's not my Predator. So I go over with this guy and I go over to this booth and this guy has the NECA boar figure, action figure. I was like, I'll be damned. It is me. It is my Predator figure. And that's when I found out NECA was doing a series of all the different Predators from Predator 2. NECA is awesome. NECA just does the coolest, geekiest stuff. But then I remembered, I had a flashback several years earlier. I'd gotten like an email from this guy and I don't remember his name, but he said, I'm a sculptor. I'm working for a toy company. I'm actually making a toy based on your Predator. Do you have any photos? And I did. I had those photos that we took behind the scenes. And I sent him the photos. And I think I had said, this is cool. You can use my photos. Just send me a, send me a figure when it's all done. Well, nothing ever came of it. Nothing ever happened. So then when I saw the NECA figure... I, I remembered that sculptor and I remembered that I sent him photos. And if you look at my photos and you look at that action figure, that action figure matches my photos perfectly down to the hand gestures. Like if you look at the way my hands are in the photos and the way I'm gesturing towards the camera, the action figure has the exact same position on his hands that my photo does. So it is literally my action figure. It's not kind of sort of a predator. It is an action figure of Wyatt Weed in the predator costume. It's really, it's pretty cool. I've got one on my desk right now. I've got one on my desk that I that I play with when nobody's looking. 
So, so what you're saying is you're playing with yourself when no one's looking. I do play with myself when no one is looking, and and I think everybody would if they had their own action. If, if they had a mini version of they, herself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, see, I'm, I'm going to have to call you out on this because you said you were polite about the action figures. You, you're polite about it unless there's an artist sitting across from you and you decide to give them a hard time when they have a Predator picture. And you're like, yeah, if someone buys it, I'll sign it, even though that's not me. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, look you know what's funny because, because <laughs> people, it, I, I'll tell you what it's. I've had, I'm not anyone of it. I mean, I, I don't have any, uh, I don't have any misconceptions about who I am or what I am. Um, William Bell, who you've probably met, William Bell, who's uh, an actor on The Walking Dead. He and I've yeah, been he a, was sitting right next to you yes. at a monster fest. Yeah, and William Bell and I have talked about it several times, and we're not. We're not Brad Pitt's. We're not George Clooney's. We know this. We know that we're not household names. We're just be, we're glad to be along for the ride. We're glad to be associated with franchises. And we're just damn happy that people want to talk to us and, and get our autographs and things like that. It's a, it's a lot of fun. And we're just appreciative of the fact that there are fans out there. So we have no delusions of who we are or how famous we are. We're not. We're, if you're fans of the stuff, you know the stuff. Um, but I have to say, even even in the uh, even with that in mind, I can't believe some of the stuff people have walked up and said, "Would you sign this?" I mean, it hasn't been as silly as like, "Would you sign a napkin?" or "Would you sign a uh, you know a business card or something?" But I've had some people walk up and and ask me to sign some pretty crazy stuff that has nothing to do with Predator, nothing to do with Star Trek. And so with, when somebody brings me, you know, Predator versus Alien and says, would you sign this? Or would they bring me a pop of the original Predator? That's much better than somebody walking up to me with a napkin or a Kleenex or something and saying, would you sign this? Maybe they you know? have a celebrity tissue uh, collection. And if they do, that's cool. I just, yeah, it's, well, I've signed strange, some things, but yeah. <laughs> I've signed some crazy stuff before, but I also have been in an audience and watched uh, the great uh, uh, Bruce Campbell. Um, I remember I was in an audience and a woman walked up to the stage and asked if he would sign her breast with a Sharpie. And basically what she was going to do was after that show and he signed her breast, she was going to go and have it tattooed permanently. So... I have yet to be asked to sign anyone's breasts, and I have yet to have me or my name tattooed on someone. So Bruce Campbell's got us all beat in, in that respect. <laughs> it, interestingly enough, I did the same thing to uh, John Reese davies mm. uh, I have a Gimli tattoo on my uh, right peck, left peck. Okay. And he was at uh, Fanex out in Salt Lake. And so I drove hours to go out and see him that, that was the whole reason to see I, I was going out to see you know davies because he you know seeing him in america is tricky he doesn't really do american conventions that often and so it's my turn i get up to see him i paid for my eight by ten and i was like yeah i would also like you to autograph right here under the uh, tattoo 
And he's like, you don't want to do that. And I was like, no, I, I do. I already have this tattoo. I want you to autograph right here. You know, and he goes, no, 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 no. What, what if I go out tomorrow and become like a mass murderer? I said, well, then I'll have a mass murderer's name <laughs> tattooed on my chest. I, you know, this is half the reason I came to finish the tattoo. You know, and so for 30 minutes, he tried to talk me out of this. You know, really nice guy. But. He has, you know, he signed it. I went over and I got it tattooed. Uh, I'm standing in line to, for some pictures the next day. Nope, oh, I jumped ahead. Sorry. Uh, and then I'm doing my photo op with him later. And he's like, you're not going to pull your breast out again, are you? <laughs> I was like, no, 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 no. It's a one-time thing. See, and that's the thing is you and I didn't get to know each other well <laughs> enough at the show. That I got to see your breast, so I didn't, uh, or your peck, I should say, your manly peck. I, I didn't get to see you uh, shirtless, so I was not aware of your your John Rice Davies uh, thing. So, well, then with, with, it got a little interesting because the, the next day, I'm standing in line for some pictures, and this lady comes up to me and she goes, "Are you the guy?" I said, "I'm a guy." You know, and she goes, "No, are you the guy?" I said. I'm sorry, what guy are you looking for? You know? And she goes, are you the guy that got my husband's name tattooed on his chest? Oh, holy cow. I was like, yeah, that's me. So his wife has a picture of the tattoo, uh, you know, the Gimli tattoo with the autograph underneath. You know that they're sitting over there in England and they're having like dinner parties and like their friends are all coming over. And, you know, they're sitting there with, like, Helen Mirren and, like, you know, uh, Ian McKellen or something at a dinner party. And they're going, oh, you want to talk about crazy fans? Check this out. This guy. guy. Look at this guy with my husband's signature on his chest. That's pretty cool, though. That's pretty cool. You you have the commitment. You have the guts. I It's taken me, you know, 55 years of life <laughs> to finally decide that I think, I think. I want a tattoo on my right arm. I, I'm thinking about getting a Batman logo on my right arm. And again, I think it's taken this long in my life to go, well, I'm never going to be a superstar and I'm never going to worry about nude modeling or anything like that. And I think it would just be fun to have a Batman logo on my arm. So at some point in time in the future, I'm seriously considering getting a Batman logo, but I'll probably never have the guts to, you know, get like Christian Bale's signature under it or anything like that. I, I have to admit, I I'll probably do the Batman logo and stop. So, well, I mean, in this day and age, even if you do hit superstardom, you you can have yes. the tattoo. I mean, yes. look at the Rock; he hides that yeah. massive Samoan yes uh, tattoo in most of his movies. Yeah, that's pretty impressive how they do that. And there's been some. Uh, some actresses who I know have tattoos who have gotten fairly scantily clad in films and you still don't see the tattoos. So yeah, yeah it's true. Yeah. I mean, they're, if they really want me in a film bad enough, they can take the tattoo off my arm. That's not a, that's not a huge problem, but yeah, no, I'm seriously considering a, uh, a bat logo of some kind on my arm. I just think that would be fun. I think I need to finish my Batman films first. And then as a present to myself, get the bat logo on my arm at that point. I think that would be fun. That would be a good completion <laughs> gift. There you go. Yeah. So you mentioned it earlier. I mentioned it earlier. You were also in uh, Star Trek. Yes. 
Yes. Uh, Next Generation, I believe. Yes. It was a third season episode called The High Ground. Um, Very similar circumstances where um, I was signed up with a casting company in Los Angeles. Um, And and my whole stint in Los Angeles, I moved out there in 1988. I was like a 24-year-old kid. And I moved out there in 88, and I was there till 2006. Did a lot of things, had a lot of fun, had had good times, learned a lot of things, but decided to leave Los Angeles. And, um, I'd been out there and I'd been acting for a little while, and I was used to going on auditions for stuff, and the auditions almost never amounted to anything. And I got a call to show up for Star Trek The Next Generation. And in, and like Predator 2, it was another one of, it was one of those holy crap moments like Star Trek. Seriously, Star Trek. Now, full disclosure, I wasn't a big Star Trek The Next Generation fan at the time, but Star Trek, it was, it was the third season of Star Trek. And if you're a Star Trek fan, Star Trek was really starting to hit its stride. And they were really starting to like get their act together. Season one was kind of hit and miss, kind of atrocious. Say by season, season two, three, the actors had, oh, yeah. had their mesh. They were starting to mesh. They were hitting off each other. The relationships so, were there. Yeah. Well, and they were just coming up with cool plot lines, and they were bringing in the Borg, and they were getting ready for that Borg cliffhanger at the end of season three. And they just, season three was really where it was starting to take off. But even despite the fact that I wasn't, because I'm original series all the way, I am a hardcore original series fan. And then I worked on Next Gen, and I also worked on Voyager, but I worked on Voyager doing special effects. I didn't. I didn't actually act on Voyager. That was just special effects work. So I've, I've had an association with Star Trek for a while. But I knew, regardless of what I thought of Next Generation, I knew if I was on Star Trek, I was literally going to be in reruns for the rest of my life. I knew that if I got on this show, I was like, well, if I do Star Trek, if I never do another thing, I will be on television forever. I mean, because it's Star Trek The Next Generation. It will be in reruns forever. Yeah. So I went in and I auditioned and it was kind of funny because they were they were more looking for types. They, you know, Star Trek is like it has a certain look and you go to a planet and everybody on the planet has the same hair or the same face or the same nose or the same whatever. So they were looking for like tall, slim, dark-haired guys and then they were looking for tall, slim, red-headed women. So they plucked us out, but they Me selected too. Oh, there you go. <laughs> They said, you're in Star Trek, man. So they, they selected me and this other guy, Nick, to be bodyguards for this guest star uh, who was going to be on the show. And I really didn't know exactly what I was in for. But, it you know, it, it was old school in a way because being a Paramount production, see if I can paint a picture here for you. Uh, Star Trek. Say what you will about Star Trek. They've always had like brilliant costumes and they've always done a lot of really amazing costume work. If you even go back to the original show, just the colors and the work they did on the costumes. Well, Paramount Studios, they have these huge warehouses full of bolts and bolts of cloth. And this is cloth dating back like decades. Like they've still got surplus cloth laying around from movies they did in the 40s and 50s and 60s so they would go in and pull out these like heavy wool bolts of fabric with these brilliant colors because they were 
making this stuff for like the Technicolor films back in the 50s and 60s. So they actually brought me in like several different days to do like makeup <coughs> tests and costume fittings. Like my Star Trek costume, it was not like they went in and pulled costume A off of a rack. They built this police uniform for me, which was really incredible. So just to be exposed to the craftsmanship of the old studio. And then Michael Westmore, who's part of the Westmore family. The Westmores have been around doing makeup effects in Hollywood for decades. And Michael Westmore, he's probably like the third Westmore doing makeup effects. He was the one who was doing makeup tests on me, which ultimately we didn't end up with any appliances on our faces, but we had like a stripe painted in our hair and Michael Westmore himself painted the stripe in my hair. But when I finally got on set, I think I was told briefly what the episode title was. And I think I was told I was going to be like a security guard or a bodyguard. And that's about all I got told. Day one, when I went in to shoot, I walked on set and there's Jonathan Frakes. There's C Commander Riker standing there who turns around and says, hi, I'm Jonathan. And let me be the first to welcome you aboard the Enterprise. And I'm standing chatting with Jonathan Frakes for like 15 minutes, just be awesome. shooting the breeze. And again, I'm trying to be as professional as possible. It's like, okay, Wyatt, everything you've learned, everything you know, be cool. Don't be a geek. Don't flip out. Just be cool. Be a professional. And then, you know, I hear this voice approaching from the distance. I hear this deep, booming voice, and it's Patrick Stewart. And Patrick walks up and starts talking, and Jonathan introduces me to Patrick. And they're talking about Michael Dorn, and Michael Dorn's having a bad day, and makeup's not going well, and blah, 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 and he's running late. And then here comes Michael Dorn in full wharf makeup. So if you can imagine... It's me, Michael Dorn, Patrick Stewart, and Jonathan Frakes just standing on a soundstage chatting. I mean, about the weather, about the traffic, the script, what's coming up that day. And I'm just, I'm holding it inside. The fanboy inside of me is going, ah, this is amazing. So we start shooting and we shot for like three days on that episode. And I don't have any lines of dialogue, but if you ever watch The High Ground, I'm very featured in it. Um, I'm involved in all the action. I have moments with uh, Riker and various moments throughout the episode. But just to hang with those guys for a couple of days, and because I was featured you know, they separate groups out. It's it's very, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. It's very prejudiced in the film industry because all the actors and the supporting actors and the guest actors, they get to sit over here and they have nice chairs and they have a snack table and they have this and that. All the extras and all the background players, they go over there. We're going to send you guys way over there and you don't get anything. You go, you go hang out on a cold soundstage without any chairs. But you guys who are featured, you come over here and you sit with the rest of the actors. So... To sit in a circle of chairs with Frakes and, and all those guys, and then Gates McFadden is in it, and I mean, I'm listening to them talk about their lives, their, the script, the shooting schedule, they're talking about fans, they're talking about conventions. Um, one of the exchanges was Jonathan Frakes was talking about, he was at a convention that weekend, and a fan raised their hand and asked if it felt better to, when you were beaming in and beaming out, did it feel better to materialize or dematerialize? And Gates McFadden laughed and said, oh, that's cute. And Jonathan Frank said, you think that's cute? He says, I think that's scary. That's the scariest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so to hear them 
talk about these things and socialize and just be a fly on the wall to just kind of soak up that professionalism. There were times where I was on set with people and I just, I wanted to see their process. I wanted to see how they worked, how they concentrated. And yeah, just to, to see them do, and oh, Brent Spiner in a scene with Brent Spiner. So to see Jonathan Frakes and Brent Spiner, it's like we have a scene where we beam in and I thought, you know, they roll a shot and you're not there and then you step in and then they call action and then they make you fade in. They make you materialize. Well, I thought you should hold still. But watching Brent Spiner and uh, Jonathan Frakes, they started moving like before the materialization was even done. Like they started moving like as characters, they knew, well, I can start moving before I'm even done materializing because I'm sort of in between places and i can see one place and i can see the and just to they were so comfortable it was season three for them they just they would ad lib things on the fly they would have little moments they would do things that would catch you off guard it was just it was just a spectacular time and uh, it was one of the best professional experiences i've ever had uh in hollywood and again i snuck my 35 millimeter camera on set and I have a photo of myself with a young actor named Christopher Pettit, who was in the episode. And this is very few people have heard this story. Um, again, without the Internet, security was very different back then. They weren't, you know, terrorism wasn't a thing. The Internet wasn't a thing. So security was there, but it was way more lax than what we know now. So one of the days that I was on on set. Uh, I knew when the lunch break was and I called my friend Ted Smith, who was out there in Los Angeles. And I said, Ted, you want to meet me at Paramount for lunch and we'll check out the Star Trek sets. So he meets me at, at lunchtime and literally like the soundstage is housing the Enterprise D sets. It was like wide open. You could just walk on. So I have photos of myself all over the Enterprise D. I have myself in the engineering room and on, on the transporter pad on the enterprise D bridge. And we just literally walked around for like 45 minutes, just photographing and looking at every little thing. I had, I stole an isolinear chip out of the, the engineering. <laughs> so, and I later talked to somebody on star Trek and I, I was like a prop guy or a set guy. And I said, would you be offended if I told you I stole an isolinear chip? And he said, oh, my God, everybody stole those things. He said, we we had to make so many replacement chips and keep sticking them in there. He said, yeah. He said, don't feel bad. Everybody stole a damn isolinear chip. So it was just a great experience. I don't, I don't know if I'm doing it justice. And then over the years, weirdly, um, I, ca- I got to keep going back for some reason. Like I had a friend who – who was friends with Michael Kuda and Michael Kuda was like one of the design and science advisors on a lot of the shows. And he's sort of the keeper of the Star Trek archives now. So he was friends with Michael Kuda and he's like, Hey, let's go have lunch with Michael Kuda. I'm like, okay, cool. So the next thing you know, we're on the Star Trek, we're on the Paramount back lot and we get to go to the deep space nine sets. And I got to walk all around the promenade set, which was like the big space station set. I think the show hadn't even premiered yet. And the set was just spectacular. It was beautiful. It was huge. And when you got into the middle of it, 
and like you couldn't really see off of either end, you were on a space station in deep space. The sets were just beautiful. And then Voyager, I never got to get on the Voyager sets, but I got to work on the opening, the pilot episode, um, the caretaker. And there was this big alien space station thing called the array. And I was one of the model makers who worked on the array. And then I got to visit the Enterprise sets as well. And it was interesting over time, you could see how they got better and better at making the sets. Because by the time they got to Enterprise, Enterprise was smaller. I mean, the ship was supposed to be smaller, but it was a lower budget show. But by the time you got to Enterprise, the the sets were so well built. And like the Enterprise bridge for the Enterprise series, it like literally pulled apart in pie sections. Like you could unbolt sections of it crank down the wheels and just walk a section of the set away. It's like in the old days, like on Next Generation, it was still like, you know, push a big wooden wall into place and then screw it in with drywall screws and then unscrew it and like a couple of grips would grab it and drag it across the floor. Some more theater style. Yeah, and by the time they got to Enterprise, man, they were like, well, we're going to have to take these sets apart. And they had little wheels and jacks and systems and interlocking bolts and stuff. And yeah, the Enterprise sets were just amazing in how tight and well-built they were. But yeah, just to see the evolution of that show over time and to get to be involved with it, you know, and, and what I said came true, which is occasionally I'll flip on television. Like even recently, I'll flip on television and there's Next Generation. I'll be like, oh, which episode is this? Oh, yeah, this is my episode. There I am. And that's just <laughs> – that's a bizarre feeling. And to be like – like I have friends and they know I worked in Hollywood. But it's not real until you're standing there and you're watching a television and there you are on the television. And it's – you know, I, like I said, I have friends who know that I did this work and then they'll see me or I'll get a phone call in the middle of the night and be like, oh my God, dude, I was just watching this show and you were on it. I'm like, yeah, I told you, you know, <laughs> Do not I told listen you I'm when we that. talk. <laughs> um, and there are people, I'll occasionally meet people and they'll look at me and, and again, this is how crazy it is. I'm not, I'm not famous, but I will meet people and they will go, do I know you? And occasionally they'll keep it up and I'll go, have you, have you seen me on TV? And they'll be like, well, what would you have been in? And I'll start rattling off titles and they'll be like, oh my God, yes, that's where I saw you. So, and I've had the scary experiences. Like I remember uh, I was on a show called The Division, which was like a lifetime network TV show. And I played an undercover cop on The Division. And I mean, I was on maybe two or three episodes, and I don't think I had any lines of dialogue, but I was the undercover cop. And I remember going into a Starbucks in Los Angeles, and the guy taking my coffee order was like, do I know you? And I said, I don't know. It's possible. I'm an actor. And he goes, oh, my God, you're the undercover cop on The Division. And I was like, okay, that's that's scary. I mean, you think it's cool, and you think it's wonderful. Until it happens to you. So I can only imagine if you're like a Brad Pitt or you're a a George Clooney or you're somebody whose face is so well known to people that you almost can't walk down the street. Now, I'm not saying I wouldn't like to be that level of famous. I think having that level of fame and power and money would be. I think your bank account would love that uh, level of famous. I, I think there would be some great advantages to it. But by the same token, I get identified by people. 
I've gotten identified because I'm a director. Like you and I have talked about our the movie I made, Shadowland. I've been walking down the street here in St. Louis and stopped by somebody who goes, are, are you a director? I'm like, yeah. Did you do Shadowland? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh my God, I saw that in the theater. And then you wonder, you start asking yourself questions. How do you know what I look like? How do you know? <laughs> how do you know? And then, you, then your brain starts turning and you go, okay, so you had to like go and find this on the IMDb or you had to find it online and then you had to research and you had to find me and then you had to find a photo of me somewhere. And then you recognize the photo well enough that you could pick me out passing me on the street. So there's a level of cool to it and there's a level of scary. I've run into professional screenwriters in Hollywood before. And I said, hi, I'm Wyatt Weed. Oh, my God, I know who you are. You worked with Steve Wang on Kung Fu Rascals. Then you were in Predator 2 and blah, 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 blah. And you're like, you're a professional screenwriter. Why are you getting all excited about me? And this you is know really who I am. That's awesome. Yeah, it's like, I'm, this is scary. I'm going to go away now, and I'm going to go hide because I don't understand. But, no, it's all really very cool. And most of the time, fans, they just they want to know about Predator. They want to know about Star Trek. Like the questions you're asking, what was it like? How cool was that? And most of them just think it's cool and they love it because they love the characters and they love the Predator and they get excited about it. And they just they like having that connection. But there's a scary side to it. There's a weird side to it that, you know, um, yeah, there's a there's a weird side to it that luckily I've not had to experience anything really dark or bad. But. I can only imagine what it would be like, like to be famous. Like you said, the the bank account would love it, but there'd be a whole different like level of things to deal with. So I'm not saying I don't want it. I'm just saying it would be a very different thing. So yeah, it's funny you mentioned the uh, trying not to fanboy, and honestly, that's how I feel as an artist at a lot of the conventions that I go to, because when when I go to the conventions, you know, I'm, I'm there as I'm there on business, you know, I'm there to sell my sure. stuff and sure. you know, and you know, I'm, I meet guys like you and Bell and Dugan and uh you know, I've the the people I've met, you know, I I got to meet Sid Haig last year before he passed. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really hard when you meet like I'm a big horror guy, obviously. It's really hard to meet some of your like icons mm -hmm. and just talk to them right without yeah. just oh my <laughs> god do you know who you are because i don't want to be that guy right yes because i'm sure yeah. they get that a lot because yeah obviously they know who they are that's why they're there you know yeah well and you you bring up something um I've had the experience where it's hard. You have to enjoy it. You have to love doing it. If you don't love doing it, like we've probably all encountered actors and famous people who maybe weren't the nicest or maybe snapped or said something rude or did something, did something that you didn't like or caught you off guard or, or you left going, wow, that actor's not as nice as I was hoping they were. Or, wow, that actor's kind of a jerk. But it's tough because when you're meeting fans, you can't – you don't really have any chances to be uh, off your game. Yeah. Yeah. 
Because if you have an off day, and let's face it, everybody has an off day. If you, and, and again, for being in the position I am where I'm not super famous, I've had off days before and I've done or said things and I know it's left a bad impression on somebody. Or I got, like I made an excuse, like I didn't want to answer questions or I didn't want to stop. I, and I made an excuse that I was going to go be doing something else. And then that fan then spoke to my wife and my wife said something, which made the fan realize that I was lying to them. And you feel horrible. And you realize very quickly that you only have one chance with these people. And if you feel bad, it doesn't matter. If you're having a bad day, it doesn't matter. If you're tired or hungry or grumpy or, you know, you had a fight with your wife that morning and your car broke down, it doesn't matter. When you're there meeting and greeting fans and signing autographs, you're trying to to leave an impression on them and you want them to know who you really are. Because if you leave, even if you have a bad day and you're off for five minutes, their impression of you is based on that five minutes. So if you're a jerk during that five minutes for the rest of their life, they think, oh, I met that guy. He was a jerk. Um, so I've compared notes with people before where, you know, they had a bad experience with someone and everyone else has had a good experience with them. Or I've had bad experiences with actors and filmmakers but I know, again, they were having a bad day. But this being the, the age of the internet, this being the time that it is, you have a bad day with somebody, they post it online, and then it gets shared and reshared and reshared. And these are terrifying times. And uh, God, you make one misstep with somebody, you touch someone the wrong way one time, your hand slips because you slipped on water and you accidentally touch someone in the wrong place. And the next thing you know, you're a molester and the internet takes you down and you crash and burn. It's just, it's, it's tough times that we live in. And, you know, I, you gotta, you gotta basically keep your attitude together the entire time you're out there. And again, I'm nobody. So I can only imagine, I can only imagine what it's like to genuinely be somebody who's in the spotlight 24 seven, every single day of the week. It just, it's, it, it boggles the mind. Well, see, and since going to these uh, conventions with my wood burnings and stuff, I've grown sympathetic for the uh, celebrities there. Because the, a, as an artist, you know, we, you know, we have to be ourselves, but we also have to put on the uh, customer service mask. You know, that you, you have to, you know, it's all smiles. It's all, you know, hi, how can I help yep. you, etc. Yeah. You know, yes. when you're out on the floor, you have to be on. The difference yes. is we can break away a little bit more to yeah. go be off. Right. Yes. You guys have to be on a lot more. That's got to be taxing. Well, yeah, it is. And there, there are some times when a fan is just so – it's like they don't – they've got you and they don't want to let you go and they don't want to they're having a good time they're having a good experience with you you're socializing with them and they just they don't want to leave it they don't want to walk away and even very recently uh, a fan has hung out at the table for no exaggeration an hour and a half two hours and they're not monopolizing the time and they're not getting in the way of other fans it's just you can tell it's like I don't want this to end. You're 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 a predator, and I love the predator. And you're talking to me, and I'm socializing with you, and I don't want to leave. And 
I can't roll my eyes. I can't, you know, rub my nose. I can't belch. I can't. It's like this, this person is standing there soaking you up for like two hours. And after a while, it's like, I, I realize I'm on and I'm on that entire time because I don't buy and I don't want to chase this fan away. And I don't want to say, get the hell out of here. I, I want to be polite, but yeah, after an hour or two, I don't like sitting face to face with my wife for two hours because eventually like you want to, you want to close your eyes. You want to lay back. You want to relax. You want to, even if it's for just a minute. Yes. I, excuse me, honey. I have to go, you know, brush my teeth or I'm thirsty. I need to go get a glass of water. And so when, you know, sometimes these fans, they just, and bless them, but they just sometimes don't know (laughs) when to call it quits. And it's, and it's tough. And, you know, like I said, you can get a reputation as a bastard and, and they're, and snap and just tell them to get the hell out of here. Um, or, or you can be cool and you can hang with it. And, and I'm sure there are people, there are probably stars and actors out there who who will say, all right, you've been at my table too long. Get out of here. But, yeah, it's uh, it's it's fascinating. I meant to tell you, by the way, before I forget, jumping subjects entirely, you gave us a couple of uh, cool Star Trek wood burnings when we were up at the Quad Cities. Yes. And... Uh, one of them has found a home because a friend – give me a, a Klingon logo. And a friend of mine who dresses as a Klingon and is a huge Star Trek Klingon fan, he saw it and flipped out. Like, oh my god, I ha- it's a Klingon logo. I was like, dude, do you, do you want this? And so, yeah, it is, it is now residing. I have, I have the uh, Monster Fest wood-burning – on my wall right now. I'm looking across the room at it, and that's hanging on my wall. The Star Trek one, though, my big, huge Klingon friend has the Klingon logo, and and he loves it with a passion. So just so you know, uh, your 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 Star Trek or your uh, Klingon logo, your Klingon symbol found found a good home with an actual Klingon. See, just that warms so you know. my heart because that, that that's, <laughs> that, that's the uh, kind of reactions that I like when I you know that, that's the reactions I look for when I do my stuff. And he, if you met him in person, you'd be like, oh yeah, that dude's a Klingon. He's a big <laughs> burly guy with a and like you have a beard, but this guy is just the way he's trimmed and the way his head is shaved. It's like you go, oh yeah, there's he's a Klingon. Oh yeah, he's a Klingon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we were talking about uh, fans with uh, personal space. Also at Monster Fest, uh, I noticed there was there was one fan, and I've seen this at other shows too. Um, I was talking with it was either John Dugan or Ed Neal. I can't remember which one. We were we were on our way to the restroom, and we were in the bathroom. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> And this fan comes up to him. In the bathroom. In the bathroom. In the bathroom. In the urinal. Ugh. Can I get an autograph? Yeah. Looks at him <laughs> and says, two minutes. Two Can minutes. I just finish, please. And I was like, does this happen often? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll never forget it. He goes, I don't know what he wanted me to sign it with. Yeah. It's like, would you like me? Well, the famous thing is, I think it was Charlton Heston was in the bathroom and a fan walked up to him and said, can I have your autograph? And Charlton Heston's thought was, well, do I sign the autograph before or after I wash my hands? You know, and it was like, yeah. And and there you go with uh, Dugan, you know, bravo to Dugan for not just 
flipping and saying, get the hell out of here, kid. I'm trying to go to the bathroom. But the fact that he kept it together and said, uh, two minutes, you know? Yeah, because I, I don't know. I have not had the pleasure yet of a fan approaching me in the bathroom. I don't know what I'd do. I, I think I'd be rational, but God, I don't know what I would do. I see. It was <laughs> honestly the strangest. It's the strangest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. Because, I mean, you know, if you see it. If you see a celebrity walking the con floor, obviously you're going to hit him up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always been my school of thought. Bathroom's off limits. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Totally like, with you on that. No, I mean, you've seen me. I'm a, I'm a big guy. Sure, yeah. I was at a wrestling event one time. And, you know, I'm using the restroom and there's like this shadow off to the side of me. And I'm just like, okay, I don't get shadowed. What's going on? I look over to the side of me, and there's just this wall. I'm like, well, what the hell is that? I look up. It's Big Show. Oh, okay. All right. And I'm just like, oh, hello. And, you know, he looks <laughs> down, and how you doing? Like, Great. You know, kind of finish up, walk out. You know, and you go back up and tell my buddy my story, and he goes, did you ask for his autograph? I said, not in the bathroom. Not in the bathroom, no. I When I was in Los Angeles, uh, I would occasionally run into people publicly. And I think they genuinely appreciated being acknowledged or being talked to without the specifics of why they were famous or asking for anything in return. Like, I can remember um, years ago, a friend of mine worked on a film with Michael Keaton worked on a film called Pacific Heights. And I remember Michael Keaton was giving out autographed photos of himself as Batman. So my friend brought me an autographed Michael Keaton Batman photo. Several years later, I'm at like an, a stereo store somewhere in Los Angeles. And I'm literally, I'm leaning at the counter waiting for the guy to talk to me. And I look over and there's Michael Keaton at the counter, you know, de dealing with something. And I looked over and I said, hey, you know, I... I actually have an autographed photo of you, and yet I've never met you. And he looked at me and he goes, huh, how's that? And I told him the story about my friend getting the autographed photo. And he goes, oh, that's very cool. He's like, hey, I'm Michael. I was like, hey, I'm Wyatt. We, like, shook hands, and then we, like, went back to our car stereo stuff. And I think, again, he appreciated the acknowledgement without the total freak out, geek out. And then I didn't stand there and try to talk to him for the next 25 minutes about Batman. I just kind of went, hey, cool, Michael. I bumped into Jerry O'Connell once, and I went, hey, Jerry O'Connell. And he's like, hey. And I said, I love sliders, man. And he goes, oh, thanks. And and we just went on. Um, I remember bumping into, like, Helen Hunt at a shopping mall once and just go and saying, oh, excuse me. And she's like, oh, excuse no problem. And I was like, oh, by the way, I, I really love Mad About You. And she's like, oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, and I, and I, I have to tell, I have to brag about this. Um, I lived in a really nice part of Los Angeles for a while, and I, I kind of overextended myself, and I spent more money than I should, but I was living in a really nice part of Los Angeles, and I don't think I realized how nice an area it was until one Halloween when uh, Lisa Kudrow from Friends knocked on our door during Halloween and was trick-or-treating with her daughter, like her young daughter, and... Again, it was like I opened the door and I saw her face and I'm like, what the hell is Lisa Kudrow? Do oh, it's Halloween. Oh, she's like, <laughs> she's a normal human and she has a normal human child and she's just trying to trick or treat. So, and I think she saw that I saw her and was shocked, but then it was like, 
oh, wait a minute, Halloween, yeah, right, oh, hello, yes, trick or treat, here, have some candy. So, uh, for what it's worth to fans, I, I think that celebrities really, really appreciate the acknowledgement without the extremes, or the acknowledgement without the asking for something. I mean, you like you said, you go to a convention, you're on the convention floor, I'm there to sign autographs. I'm there to meet and talk to people. But out in public, I mean, I can think of nothing worse than interrupting a celebrity at a restaurant and saying, hey, can I get an autograph? How about, you know, you walk by him at the restaurant and say, hey, man, love your work and keep going. That's it. I, I think, quick acknowledgement. Yeah. Treat him like a human. Yeah. and. You know, but I'm with you. The number one rule is uh, no autographs in the bathroom. <laughs> that's just weird no autographs in the bathroom I was at I got to go to the Oscars one time um, this is on the technical side I, I worked as an editor and because on the Oscars you know, on the Oscar broadcasts they show all the clips and, and like oh and for the best acting award you know blah 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 and then they show a clip from the movie well some editors have to pull all those clips and assemble all that stuff and then they have to get that all approved by the actors and the producers and stuff so i worked on the oscars and it was very cool my assignment was to pull clips for titanic so i got to go through all these titanic clips and i got to go through behind the scenes stuff and pull shots of james cameron and stuff like that so as the editing team, we were all invited to the Oscars that year. So I actually got to see James Cameron win his his Oscars for Titanic. I got to see or hear Celine Dion sing My Heart Will Go On live. But we were because we were the editing team, we were relegated to like the third balcony. <laughs> so I was like, Oh, look at the Oscars, way down there. Here, you want the binoculars? Left. That's way down there. But it was an incredibly cool experience. And there were celebrities everywhere. You were bumping into celebrities, but I went to the bathroom at the old Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles, and Red Buttons was in the bathroom. Do you know who Red Buttons is? Anyway, Red Buttons is this famous actor, and it was like so cool to see Red Buttons and acknowledge him in the bathroom. I didn't ask him for a thing. It was just cool, but but yeah. And then a friend of mine later on went to the Emmys, and he was talking about meeting famous people. And I said, you want to meet famous people? Go to the, go bath to the bathroom, go to the bathroom. And I forget who he told me he saw in the bathroom. And again, he didn't ask him for anything, but yeah, I forget. But yeah, if you want to meet famous celebrities, go to the bathroom. Just, just don't ask him for anything. Said, don't, don't ask for an autograph <laughs> and definitely don't ask for a handshake until after the yeah, sink. There you go. Wait till they wash their hands before you ask for anything. So, and then, uh, you got to work on, Two of my favorite films. Okay. Uh, you worked on one, and you were in uh, the second one, Guyver and Guyver 2. Ah, yes. The Guyver films. Yes. Um, Which have now become like cult classic films. Yes. I recently, because I may work in the industry and I may do stuff in the industry, but I am a fan and a, and a geek myself in that uh, I just recently picked up VHS copies of both Guyver and Guyver 2. And I think I have both films. I have I have one of them on Laserdisc and I have one of them on DVD. So I've got nice digital copies, but the VHS copies, I found some pristine in-the-case VHS copies recently, and I was like, I don't even watch VHS anymore, but I have to get these because they're Guyver 1 and 2. I have to get them. Um, Guyver 1 and 2, again, there was that connection 
because I knew Steve Wang and because he and I had worked together on some of his low budget films, uh, when he got the opportunity to do Giver, he sort of brought along everybody who he'd been working with. That, he, he was really great about, you know, oh, you helped me out and you're really good at this. I'm going to bring you along. I have a real film project with real money now. I'm going to bring you along on this. And on the first Giver film, um, I got to do primarily a lot of makeup effects work and creature suit work. And then I was the miniature supervisor. There was a lot of stuff. Well, well, there was a lot of stuff in Giver that was visual effects, but there was a big battle scene at the end where the Giver is fighting the huge Zoonoid, and a lot of that was miniature work. So I got to do a lot of miniature work on that film. And the first film, probably you and I would both agree, the first film's a little funky because, you know, they kind of went with the comedy routine and... And it was co-directed by Screaming Mad George. And I like Screaming Mad George. I think George is a good guy. Screaming Mad George, his sensibility is kind of odd and weird to begin with. He's like the, he's like the surrealistic effects guy. And he likes this sort of weird, over-the-top, bizarre kind of stuff. So through a series of you know negotiations that I won't go into, George and Steve – I think George had the connections and George had the business and the money and the producers and George had the schmooze with all these people. Steve was the technical guy. Steve was the filmmaker. So I think it worked out well and the deal happened that George and Steve came together to do this film together. And George kind of handled a lot of character stuff and a lot of weird comedy things. And then Steve handled the action. And I think they just decided that with the low budget and with sort of the crazy circumstances they were working under, comedy was kind of the way to go. And in that respect, the film is kind of successful. If you know the original manga and anime that it's based on, you realize the film is pretty off the mark. But it was successful in its own right. Um, it was an opportunity to work with some incredibly cool people. Um, that's That began one of my associations with Mark Hamill that lasted for several years because Mark Hamill was in the film. And that's, that's a fun story. I've got fun Mark Hamill stories. Um, but that was a great experience. It was a learning experience. But what was so cool about Giver is – we had like, I don't know, we had like a two and a half or three million dollar budget. Uh, half a big chunk of it was in the actors, but we had like a three million dollar budget and the film came out okay. Steve then on his own got a chance to do the sequel and Guyver had been successful, but not so successful that they were going to spend more money. They basically had like, eight or nine hundred thousand dollars to do a second film and steve got to do it on his own and steve basically set out to sort of fix everything that was wrong with the first film so of course he wanted to make it much more dramatic much more serious and I, on guyver dark hero again he brought along everybody who'd worked so hard it's like he got rid of the people who didn't help and he brought in the people who did help and on the second film i got to step up to associate producer second unit director and I did not supervise the miniatures. There was a guy named Dean Satkowski who supervised the miniatures. But I was incredibly involved in the miniatures and helped work out how all the miniatures were going to be done. And then, of course, as you mentioned, I got to do a, a small part, a speaking part for once. I got to do a small speaking part in the film of Donnie, 
the security guard in the beginning of the film who gets blown away. I get, I got squibbed big time. I got shot. I don't know how many times I get shot in the film, but that was a great scene. I get to be shot by the bad guy. Um, but Guyver Dark Hero was just, uh, it was much more grueling because we put a lot of time and energy into that film and we worked a lot of overtime without pay. Um, we just basically camped out in a warehouse in the San Fernando Valley for like three months one summer and we just worked our guts out to make that film. And I think it's a far superior film to the first one. It has its own issues, um, but I really enjoyed Guyver 2. And Guyver 2 was a film – I mean, it didn't get us big studio films or anything. It did for Steve, but it, it – when people saw what we could do with that film, it led to other things and it got us other gigs and it, it helped propel us along. It was weird how it worked out for Steve because Steve then had the opportunity to go on and do other things. And some of those opportunities didn't work out. Steve was the first director on the Power Rangers movie, the first Power Rangers film. And, I think he wanted to do it really serious and really hardcore and he really wanted to keep a sensibility and they wanted to go a little more family friendly. So he ended up parting ways with the Power Rangers people, but, um, I wish no, you would have I would, stayed. Oh, I do too. I, but you know, what was fascinating is that people saw Power Rangers and they saw some of the martial arts and some of the stunts in Power Rangers. And I think some of the stunt team that worked on Guyver Dark Hero went on to Power Rangers. Like, Steve left, but a lot of the stunt people stayed on board. A lot of people who didn't see Guyver Dark Hero saw Power Rangers. And Power Rangers was sort of a pick-and-choose... Like, they took a lot of the stuff from Guyver Dark Hero and redid it in Power Rangers, but not as well. Um, some of the stunts and some of the sequences in Guyver Dark Hero, I think, are some of the best stuff that's been done in Hollywood in the last 30 years... And our wire work, we have wire work in Guyver Dark Hero that is flawless. I mean, I've seen I've seen wire work in big Hollywood movies like Matrix films that isn't as good as what our wire work was. And, you know, when you when you sort of put those union considerations with all due respect to the unions, when you put those union considerations and those overtime issues aside and you you stop worrying about whose department is what, as long as you stay safe. It is amazing what you can get done. And just a handful of guys working on a set in the middle of nowhere without anybody stressing over what was what, we, we were really able to accomplish some some amazing stuff in that movie. And I, I wish Guyver Dark Hero would get more love. I wish I wish it was more well known than it was. But like, you know it and, and the fans of it really appreciate it. So yeah, it, it definitely has its own like little pocket universe of uh, fans. Yeah. Like yes. my friend had never seen Star Wars. Okay, and so I sat him down to watch Star Wars for the first time. He goes, "Hey, that's the guy from Guyver." <laughs> I was like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> Which he's not wrong. He just has it. He, he has it backwards. It. Yeah, he views it in reverse of what most of the rest of the universe does, yeah. but no, he's not wrong. He's not I, wrong. At all. I, honestly, I think the problem with the Guyver movies is they were ahead of their time. Oh, yes. Yeah, you make you a good do point. those movies right now. Yes. Blockbuster hits. Yeah, because that was sort of the beginning of the, the chop-socky martial arts 
crossover, we hadn't really had a big modern resurgence of that. And probably starting there in the mid-90s, you got Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Then you got Jackie Chan starting to do some American studio stuff. And then certainly right about the time of The Matrix, we started seeing martial arts stuff take off in the United States. And we were always getting the Americanized version of it. But no, I absolutely agree with you. If uh, if if Guyver was done now with a proper budget, I think that... Uh, yeah, it would be really cool. I think, I think with all the stuff that's going on with streaming services and Amazon Prime and Netflix, I think a live action Guyver series would just be outrageous because, that, which means could be time for a Guyver reboot. And, and, uh, Steve did end up going on and doing the, uh, the Saturday morning, the Common Rider series. He ended up producing Common Rider Dragon, Common uh, Rider Dragon Knight, was it? Common Rider. Anyway, he did the Common Writer series that was on Saturday morning and produced and directed several episodes. Um, so he was kind of with uh, Power Rangers. Yes, yes, yes. He did Master Rider, some bitch. Well, with Common Writer, whatever version of Common Writer ended up like in the like in the mid two thousands, late two thousands, yeah. the Common. I'm pretty sure it was Common Writer Dragon Knight. I could yeah. have that wrong. But yeah, he did Common Rider Dragon Knight. So, and it's it's a much more serious, much more different take. And if you pay attention to Common Rider Dragon Knight, he carried over actors from from Guyver Dark Hero, like Kathy Christofferson and various people from from uh, Dark Hero turn up in in Dragon Knight. So, so so so. But yeah, I, I think it's time for. I'm with you. I think it's time for a Guyver. A Guyver reboot. Um, God, I learned a lot on those movies, though. Uh, just, I mean, I was already a filmmaker and I was already experienced, but it, it's low budget filmmaking is such a different mentality than studio filmmaking. Like, I, I love Marvel movies. I love Star Wars films. I love all those movies, but like Avengers Endgame. And Avengers Endgame is a massive film, but Avengers Endgame has like one of the largest budgets of any film ever made. It has like a $360 million budget or something. And Star Wars uh, Rise of Skywalker, I want to say, I don't know if that one was over $200 million. But you know, these films are massive and all of the Marvel films are $100, $150, $200 million plus. Um, and in a case like that, money is an issue, but... For special effects people and miniature people and CGI people and costume people, it's all kind of there. It's like, oh, you want us to blow up a building? You want us to crash a car? You want us to create this or that? Well, here's how much money it's going to cost. And they get out the money hose and they give you as much money as you need to make these things happen. In low-budget films, Guyver Dark Hero, which was shot predominantly in 19... uh, 1993 and then released in released in 1994 i think our budget was 800 grand and we went over budget a little and i think the final budget was closer to about nine hundred and twenty thousand dollars. so nine hundred and twenty thousand dollars to make guyver dark hero on film not even on video but shoot on film and finish it on film I think $920,000 wouldn't cover the craft service budget of a film like Avengers Endgame. I bet you the 
the catering budget on Avengers Endgame was probably more than Guyver Darkiro was. And on Guyver Darkiro, our mentality, uh, you know, we were very much like the Japanese projects that inspired it, where one of the things about the Japanese that I love is Japanese filmmakers, they don't take no for an answer and they don't, they don't limit themselves. Like, if you've got some crazy concept in uh, a Change Man series or a Super Sentai or something, they figure out how to do it. It's not always slick. It's not always pretty. It's not always 100% successful. But they just come up with these crazy ideas and they just do this fun stuff. And it's about having fun and it's about, you know, just completing the vision. It's not about the money. And on a movie like Guyver Dark Hero... We never said, oh, we can't do this because we don't have money. It was usually a matter of, well, how can we pull this off? Can we do it with money, uh, with miniatures? Can we cheat it like this? Well, what if we shoot it like that? Or, well, we can't do this particular thing, but we can do something like this. And we just had that freedom and that creativity. And I don't see that as much in movies anymore. I think. There are some low-budget films getting made, like the John Wick films, which I say low-budget. There's still millions of dollars, but, but they're, they're not films get- Disney budgets. Yes, exactly. And those guys are doing creative, inventive, amazing things. And that's one of the things. I love Marvel movies. Man, I was there opening night of Endgame. I was cheering and yelling and crying. Endgame was amazing. But it was a very different experience than seeing, like, a low budget horror film, like seeing like night of the creeps in the theaters in the 1980s is a very different experience than seeing Avengers Endgame Now. I mean, these are just very different movies or, you know, back in the eighties, you go to the VHS store and you rent a VHS and you discover some amazing low budget film, like from another country. And you just go, Oh my God, this is fantastic. How did they do this? Nowadays, everything is CGI, it's hundreds of millions of dollars, and there's no guesswork. You go back to an older film like, you know, Gremlins or Dawn of the Dead or, you know, some of the early... Practical uh, effects. Yes. And and you, you, you watch these films and your jaw hits the floor and you're like, oh my God, how, how on earth did they do that? Um, it's just, it's, it's all very different now. It's... Even with my own films, uh, you and I have talked about my film Shadowland, and Shadowland has a lot of practical stuff in it, has a lot of miniature stuff in it, and but people don't – it's like people say to me now, regardless how we did the effect, people say, your CGI was really good. Even when it wasn't CGI, it's like they don't know anymore. When I was a kid, like watching Predator, we walked away from the first Predator film going, wow, how did they do that cloaking effect? Wow, that scene where, you know, Carl Weathers got his arm blown off and the arm falls to the ground and the gun is still firing. Wow, that was a great rig. I wonder how they did that. Nowadays, there's no question to it. It's like CGI. Was it good CGI? Was it bad CGI? You know, I came away from a Fast and Furious movie. I didn't like how it looked. Oh, that last Star Wars film looked good. The CGI was good. There's not the guesswork. We used to walk out of those films and we knew the techniques. We knew there was miniatures and motion control and blue screen and puppets and makeup effects. We knew all these different things. You just didn't know how it was being combined or what tricks they were doing. Was it being shot in reverse? Was it this? Was it that? Nowadays, it's like, 
The, the answer is the computer. Oh, they did it with the computer. So even on a film like mine, where I still did everything by hand, people just go, oh, well, you must have done it with the computer. And it's, it's sad, really. It's, 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 it's kind of heartbreaking that a lot of that craftsmanship is either people ignored. Have lost or, a lot of respect yeah. for the, the uh, practical effects. Yeah. yeah. Even with this last Star Wars film, uh, Rise of Skywalker, which I liked, there were a lot of scenes in it where, unlike the prequels, which were shot predominantly on green screens and the people looked like they were on green screens, with Rise of Skywalker, man, they were in the desert. They were on sets. They were actually fighting. They were, it was very real. But even then, they'd extend the sets with CGI or, you know, they'd be in a Jedi temple and make the Jedi temple look like it was 500 feet high and 1,000 feet deep. And they still, even with all the practical and all the things they were doing, they were still taking the computers and just, you know, making everything five times bigger because they could. So. Anyway, end of rant. I'll stop ranting about that now. <laughs> I say, you also got to do uh, visual effects on a couple other movies near the end and beginning of the new millennium. You did visual effects on Muppets from Space and miniatures on ah. MI2. Miniatures on? Mission Impossible 2. Oh, Mission Impossible 2, yes. Um, Muppets from Space. Wow, Muppets from Space was a great experience for me. I keep saying great experience. I did have bad experiences in Hollywood, but Muppets from Space was a great experience because I got to be so involved in the design process. And primarily what we were involved in was the scene at the end of the film where the Gonzo spaceship arrives and Gonzo meets his his alien brethren and they perform a big musical number. And <laughs> so there's this big like turtle-shaped spaceship that descends from the sky and flips over. And so I was one of probably the two lead designers who designed the Gonzo spaceship. And then myself and probably a crew of about five people built the Gonzo ship and then supervised all the motion control work and did all the compositing and stuff for that scene. And that was a nice experience because we had a lot of freedom, a lot of creativity, and and honestly, a lot of money. We had a lot of money to do that end scene. And that was, you know, after working on Guyver and Guyver Dark Hero and movies like that, it was kind of nice to go over to a film like Muppets from Space because you had almost as much money for a, an individual scene as the entire budget of a movie like Guybrush Dark Hero. So, you know, having supplies and having plenty of time and energy and having money to order pizza was just that was a real <laughs> that, you know, it doesn't sound like much, but it's it makes a lot of difference and and just having the time to do it right. But it was a great experience for me to follow it all the way through, to go from the design phase, because a lot of times in Hollywood films, you, the designer does it and hands it over, and then somebody else does a blueprint and then hands it over, and somebody else builds the sets and hands it over, and somebody else scenics it. So I got to go from the design phase to the building phase to the painting phase to the shooting phase, which was almost unheard of. And and so that was just a great experience to be able to see that through. Um and then, of course, the finished film. I don't know how successful a film it was, but like other films, it's got a cult following, and it's a Muppet film, so you know people know it. Um, it was it was a good experience. It was a good it was a good time. Um, and it finds new viewers every year. Oh yeah, 
yeah, the Muppets just the Muppets are just going to be around forever. Um, the uh, <laughs> the the guy I worked for, uh, David Sharp. Um, I worked with David Sharp many times in Hollywood, and David Sharp had worked on several of the Muppet films, and he told me a story. I want to say Brian Henson directed Muppets from Space, and Brian Henson had also directed Muppet Treasure Island, and David Sharp worked for the Hensons on Muppet Treasure Island. And he was talking with Brian Henson about like a, a, a miniature special effects scene that they'd done. And he said, Brian, that was such a great scene. Why did it get cut? And Brian basically said to him, you know, it was a great scene and I really, really liked the scene, but any scene, if we hadn't cut that scene, we were going to have to cut a scene with one of the Muppets. And he said, and it's a Muppet film, and you don't cut Muppets out of a Muppet film. <laughs> so, so it was interesting, and he's got a point. He was basically saying, you know, I'm not here to make art, and I'm not here to make the story as well-structured as humanly possible. I'm here to make a Muppet film, so I'm not cutting Muppets out of the movie. It's just like, your special effect was brilliant, but I'm not cutting Muppets because your special effect was good. Um, but Henson was very cool, and all the production people were cool, and, and it was a really good experience. Mission Impossible 2, an, another great experience, but you mentioned the, the end of the millennia. Um <laughs> Mission Impossible 2, you could really start to get a sense of where this was all headed. Because even on Muppets from Space, we were transferring, like the film elements were all being transferred to digital. And then a lot of the post-production work was getting done digitally. The compositing and everything was getting done in the computer. But it was still a process. By the time we got to Mission Impossible 2, and I was primarily involved, there's a scene in the beginning of the movie where they they kill this guy and they take the germ warfare thing they they take the horrible virus and they bail out of the 747 so uh, there's a guy wearing a tom cruise mask he's actually the bad guy they kill the doctor they take the virus and they bail out of the plane we built a 14 foot long miniature 747 model that was used for that sequence uh and we built it in the United States. We shipped it over to England, and they shot all the motion control stuff in England. So we weren't able to supervise the model on while it was shooting. But long story short, we ended up getting the model back. So we did the opening sequence. But then what happened was later in the film, the plane crashes, and it's implied that the plane crashed. You see the pilot look up. They're headed into a mountain. They cut away. It's implied that the plane crashed. Well, later on, Tom Cruise is trying to convince Tandy Newton to join the mission. And the way he convinces her is he shows her the crash site and, and he flips open his computer and he goes, look, this is what the guy did. And you see the plane crashed in the mountains. It's horrible, twisted wreckage in the mountains. They had originally shot something live action, which was like a facade in the snow with like rescue workers pulling bodies out of the snow. Apparently it wasn't very effective and it didn't get the point across. So if you can imagine mission impossible two was released on like, I don't know, May 25th or something. And the year 2000, 2002, it was released on like May 25th. Well, as of like April 1st, maybe April 10th, they made the decision to replace the shots on the computer. And they said, we're going to send you back 
the model of the 747 from England. We want you to trash the model, make it look like it's been crashed. We want you to build a miniature mountainside, crash the model, make it look all burned and blown up. And, and then they're go- we're going to drop that into the, the computer shots. And this is like early April. The film is going to be released in like six weeks. And we were flabbergasted because no we pressure. thought, well, but we, we hadn't, like, we weren't aware of what was happening because we're thinking, well, you got to composite that. You got to make a negative. You got to do prints from the negative. You guys don't have time to do this. Well, so much was happening digitally that we didn't realize what was going on. Like, they weren't worried about it because they were going to do this all digitally and then they were going to make digital prints. And it was just the technology was moving faster than even we as special effects guys were aware of. And at some point in time, they talked to David Sharp and they said, we want you to shoot high resolution digital stills. So we didn't actually shoot film footage or video footage of the crash 747. We actually shot like really high resolution digital stills of it. And I want to say we sent them the digital stills on like the 24th or the 25th of April. And the film got released basically a month later. They dropped those stills onto the computer to show the crash in the film. And and the film was in theaters within a month. And that was sort of my first taste of how quick the post-production process was becoming, but how powerful digital was becoming. I mean, digital was becoming a very big thing at that point. And then, you know, everything kind of kicked over into light speed. And, you know, within a few years of that, I was making digital features and I was editing at home and, you know, we were starting to send files back and forth. And yeah, the digital moved very, very quickly at that point. I I have to tell you a story about Mission Impossible 2. Um, The the effects supervisor in Mission Impossible 2 was a guy named Richard Urasich. And you probably won't know the name, but Urasich has been around a long time, and he partnered a lot with Douglas Trumbull. And Douglas Trumbull did visual effects for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He did visual effects for uh, Blade Runner. And Richard Urasich had been a partner with Douglas Trumbull and worked on all these famous films. So Richard Urasich knew his stuff, but he had a lot of stories. Well, Richard Urasich had actually worked on 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, wow. Yeah. So one night, David Sharp and I are hanging out with Richard Urasich while we're building the 747. Richard Urasich came over to the office to look at the 747, and we're all telling war stories about, well, yeah, I was on Guybrush Dark Hero, and Steve Wang did this, and David Sharp's like, oh, yeah, well, I was on, you know, this particular film, and I, I... and William Friedkin did this. And Richard Urasich goes, yeah, well, one time on 2001 A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick said, and we were all just like, whoa. What? Okay, you win. <laughs> yeah, Richard, you win. You've got a 2001 Stanley Kubrick story. For, you win. You get the prize. Forget it. We'll stop talking now. But yeah, it was just. It was one of those moments of like, you know, okay, shut up. You don't have any idea who you're talking to. This is, you're talking to special effects royalty here. Just shut up and listen. But yeah, Richard Urasich is, uh, I don't even remember specifically what the story was anymore. But yeah, it's like the Stanley Kubrick story wins. Just, we'll we'll all go home now. Thank you. (laughs) Every time. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we are going to take all of your skills 
and roll them into your film Shadowland and talk about that. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, Horror Hounds, be sure to tune in next week right here on the same mass channel for our thrilling conclusion and part two of our story time with Wyatt Weed, where we dive deep into his movie Shadowland. Until next time, mash on. This has been Bruce's Monster Mash. Come back for more chills and thrills if you dare. <laughs>